Welcome to another podcast episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Today's topic is the first part of a two-part interview where we discuss the impact of artificial intelligence on military legal practice with Colonel Frank Coppersmith. Here are a few highlights from today's show on the power and impact of AI. Today, when we look at computing power, we see that same computing power that took 90 years to develop, now developed every single hour. And that's really hard to get your head around. Certainly, our other lawyers operating in our space are going to be using this technology. And if we're not using this technology, we're going to find ourselves falling quickly behind. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Welcome to another podcast episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School at Maxwell Air Force Base, Alabama. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Today's topic is the impact of artificial intelligence on military legal practice. The topic is broad, complex, and evolving at remarkable speed. The interview with our guest, Colonel Frank Coppersmith, is approximately an hour in content, so we broke it up into two parts. This first part focuses on artificial intelligence at large, including what some of the leading minds think about AI, its history and development, capabilities, and computing power, among other areas. In part two, we hone in on AI's role in military legal practice. Last, if you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. This helps us to grow and foster outreach. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Colonel Frank Coppersmith. Colonel Coppersmith is a Category B reservist attached to the Staff Judge Advocate U.S. Cyber Command in Fort Meade, Maryland. Colonel Coppersmith served on active duty for five years before entering the Reserve Corps and has held a number of assignments through his career. Colonel Coppersmith is the current CEO of Smarter Reality, a software consulting and development company based in Austin, Texas. He and his team of designers and engineers support small businesses and entrepreneurs with creating products for e-commerce, artificial intelligence, augmented and virtual reality, and entertainment. Colonel Coppersmith received a BS in Electrical Engineering from the Citadel, JD from Samford University, and a Master of Business Administration from the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for being on the show today, sir. Well, thanks so much, Major. I'm excited to have a chance to uh, chat with you today. So uh, today's topic is the impact of artificial intelligence on military legal practice. Uh, This is a very large topic, to say the least. Uh, The news is replete with the impact that AI will have on humanity. For example, billionaire and SpaceX CEO and founder Elon Musk has called AI, quote, our greatest existential threat, end quote. And the late world-renowned theoretical physicist and cosmologist Stephen Hawking stated that AI could be, quote, the worst event in the history of our civilization, end quote, unless society finds a way to control its development. Sir, with that in mind, talking about artificial intelligence, if we could maybe take a 30, 40,000 foot view and kind of step back, maybe you could talk briefly just about kind of the pace of innovation from the computing power standpoint. 
Yeah, you know, I'm happy to. I, I think even before I do that, I want to want to dive in a little bit on both those quotes. I when, I think you left out actually the one from Elon Musk that is the most impressive, where he actually talks about AI as, and this is a quote from him, unleashing the demon. And I think he believes that, and I think many who are starting to study artificial intelligence believe that because of the wide-ranging impacts that AI is going to have. Um, it's not merely that it, it, it could do something evil. This isn't, this isn't about building Terminator robots or scary machines. It's the idea that we are building technology that is demonstrating that it can perform many tasks that have been just focused, you know, only the things that humans could do, things that used human cognition and human talent and human capabilities and, and finding machines that can do them, um, not just as well, but better. And when you, when you see these kind of these concerns raised by these thought leaders, by these technologists who have great visibility into what is being built, I really think what they are seeing is a world where we begin to prefer the decisions and the choices and the operations that machines perform, machines powered by AI, because it'll be able to access more information. It'll be able to take more considerations into account. It won't be driven by at least human nature, human biases. And that ultimately we are building a world where in, in many ways humanity becomes simply the boot routine for the future AI gestalt. Um, and that may seem a little extreme, but that is you know, with the, that is what these folks who have such great visibility are seeing. And then and the reason that is gets to your question around the growth of technology and the where, where things have gone. So one of the things that's really hard to believe, especially if we spend if you think about. Think about how our experience as judge advocates have been. When I entered my very first law office in January of 1995, the list of things I did not have access to is hard to believe. I did not have access to the Internet or the World Wide Web because they didn't really exist. I did not have access to WebFlight because it had not been built. I did not have access to a cell phone or to effective texting because they simply didn't have wide adoption. Um, what we all had were isolated personal computers that sat on our desks and a printer. And that was seen as just terrific technology and, and wonderful. Today, of course, we're all interconnected. And what has driven that has been a growth of computing power that is just hard to get your head around. One of the ways that computing power is measured is in the number of calculations that can be done for a certain amount of money. And the standard, the standard is 1 million calculations per second. For $1,000. Now, from the time the very first mechanical computers were built, say in the 1900s, until about 1990 or so, it took us that long, about 90 years, to where we got our very first computer that can perform 1 million instructions per second, basically a million calculations, and at the same time could do that for $1,000 in cost. Today, right now, in 2019, where we sit, modern computers add that much computing power every hour. So what took us 90 years from the invention of the very first mechanical computers up through the launch of the very first solid-state computers, up through microprocessors, up to the very first PCs, which came in right before I became a lawyer, that entire almost century of innovation century of advancement, we see that every single hour. And so when you take in that kind of horsepower, when you take in that kind of processing power, 
that's really where AI begins to come from, a sense that it can it has access to more information than we've ever had before. Yes, sir. And I think uh, you mentioned in, in one of your papers uh, that by 2020, the average desktop computer will have roughly the same processing power as the human brain. And by 2050, the same computer will have more processing power than all of humanity combined. That's correct. And, and the piece that's kind of left out of that is the other half of that. So once we have great computing power, what we have to have is we have, have to have information that we can begin manipulating, information that we can be, begin understanding. And what has changed in the world uh, for us has been the rise of smartphones. With the arrival of smartphones, the amount of data that we're generating every day, every hour, every year is magnitudes more than existed digitally even 10, 20 years ago. To, to, put, that in per, to put that in perspective, um, almost all the data, almost all the digital data that's ever existed, more than 90%, has been created in the last two years. So when you combine all that digital data, location data, photographs, imagery, texting, email, all the things that go along with it, with this horse, with this incredible computing power, that's where AI comes from. So, sir, we're going to put in the show notes um, a slide that you had provided to us by Ray Kurzweil. It's captioned Growth of Computing Power. Can you speak briefly to this slide? I sure can. So when we think back to the birth of computing, we had some of our very first analytical engines, uh, mechanical computers, adding machines, created at the turn of the last century, say around the 1900s. It took 90 years it took 90 years before we got to the basic measure of computing power, which is 1 million instructions per second by spending $1,000. So 90 years to get to that. And you can see that as a, it's, a, it's a curve you can see on the slide. Between today, when we look at computing power, we see that same computing power that took 90 years to develop, now developed every single hour. And that's really hard to get your head around. It's 90 years of technical innovation, 90 years of improved computing power, 90 years of improved microprocessors, and we see those improvements every single hour today. The other interesting thing about this slide is you look at it, you realize the scale on the, the y-axis scale is not a linear scale. It's a logarithmic scale. So when you look at the curve, which goes up and to the right, it isn't, if, if it were put on a linear scale, it would be up and to the right as a almost a straight line straight into the sky. Right. So this is uh, exponential, um, an exponential curve. I'm sorry, you're correct. It's actually an exponential curve. That's correct. Yes, sir. So kind of with that um, idea in mind, with what is artificial intelligence? So artificial intelligence is nothing more than using a machine to perform actions that were otherwise assigned human cognition or human ability. So it's a sense that rather than you or I or a person having to make a decision, we're able to turn that decision over to uh, over to a machine. And so that means artificial intelligence can be something as simple as a, uh, as, as a as a toaster with almost something as basic as a timer on it, all the way up to the modern deep learning functions of today. And is it fair to characterize uh, artificial intelligence into different types? And if so, what would those be? Yeah. So there's a host of when you when you think about artificial intelligence, it's a it's a that's a very, very large bucket. And you typically break it into a couple categories. 
The first and most basic category is one that pulls in information. That's been our big driver for the longest time. This is things like image recognition and machine vision and, and speech to text and text to speech. Um, even to some extent robotics, the sense I have to be able to sense the world around me, uh, much in the same way that, that humans sense it, whether I'm reading a newspaper or trying to understand a stop sign in a self-driving car. Then the second piece to it is the sense once I have all of this information, well, what do I do with it? How do I, what, how do I, how do I turn that into something that is, into something that allows, allows the, the piece of software to make, to make decisions? And that typically comes in a broad bucket called machine learning. Uh, a lot of different elements of machine learning. But for that, the best way to think about it is I am a machine learning piece of software is one that can learn and come to understand the world around it without being explicitly programmed. So traditionally, software, uh, if I take a piece of software and I'll give you a good example, you take something like DL Wills. DL Wills is a form of artificial intelligence. Um, specifically, it's a form of augmented intelligence. It augments human decision-making. It does this by taking lots and lots of information that we know about how, say, to write a will, and it breaks into very, very sophisticated flowcharts that then prompts the user, uh, the lawyer, to work through it in a, in a, in a, in a, on a certain cadence and come out with a, a, an, an enhanced result. But there are other types of, of, of uh of learning and machine learning that are, you know, we call that, I'm sorry, we call that an expert system. That's an expert system because it takes expertise and needs to be programmed by experts. The other piece to it is machine learning. Um, often a component of that is something called deep learning, where rather than having to explicitly program a piece of, uh, a piece of software, I can simply take data that has been curated and determined to be relevant, provide that software with that data, and the data under a host of different conditions can actually, uh, the software under a host of different conditions can use that data to actually learn much the same way that humans learn. You think about how your child may learn or you learn a new thing. You learn through experimentation. You learn through reading. You learn by finding what works and what doesn't work. And that's, and we've, and basically with machine learning and sometimes referred to as deep learning systems, we've built technology that learns exactly the same way. So, Deep learning, sir, I think we've talked about this before um, uh, kind of offline, is that I think you'd mentioned that this is really the, the re where the revolution is occurring. That's correct. So deep learning has been around for a good 30, 40 years. Um, deep learning is often referred to sometimes as uh, learning via a neural network. Uh, inside your brain right now are neurons, neurons. Those neurons all talk to each other. It's how you set down memories. It's how if your, your child learns or children learn, um, neural networks, neural networks are made of inputs, outputs, and what are described as activations or sometimes activation functions. So the neurons are all connected to each other. They get inputs. They, based on criteria that they, that they learn over time, send out outputs. Those go into other neurons put together in an enormously complex web of information and interconnectivity. They're able to make decisions. What has changed for us in artificial intelligence or those of us building uh, software-powered artificial intelligence is that we're now able to build neural networks where before we could not. We couldn't build neural networks that were successful before because we didn't have the hardware that could make the calculations fast enough. And we didn't have the amount of data needed to, make, to, to actually teach neural networks. 
Today, with the advent of smartphones and modern microprocessors, those two barriers have, have been have fallen. And now neural networks are becoming the preferred way of building uh, decision-making decision making software. And so, so, so maybe to kind of circle back a little bit from the beginning when we were talking about artificial intelligence, um, just the way that I think about it, I kind of think of uh, maybe human our human involvement, like you mentioned, a toaster, where that would be a, a supervised uh, involvement. And then you have what would be, uh, I guess, semi-involved human. And then uh, on the, far, the, the furthest spectrum, which you're talking about here, deep learning, is that more or less unsupervised uh, by the human? It, it, it depends. So deep learning, you could take a deep learning neural network and you can either provide it um, supervision or non-supervision. A supervised deep learning network is one where I want to build something that in an automated fashion recognizes an, an outcome, say recognizes a stop sign. Um, let's say it's a self-driving car. Well, a user driving the car can, can, or can note that there is a stop sign. And if the AI does or does not recognize it, the AI can know I should have seen that as a stop sign and use that to learn much faster. That's tradition. That is how most neural networks are being built, because for the most part, we know the right answer. We are simply trying to build a piece of software that either comes to that answer faster or comes to that answer without the intervention of a human. For example, self-driving car. Unsupervised deep learning is probably where the great breakthroughs are going to ultimately come from. Um, supervised learning, what are we trying to do? We're just replacing a person. Unsupervised learning, we're trying to figure out answers and use the AI to find answers when the mass of information is far greater and far more dense than a human being could ever see. It's sometimes called finding the signal inside the noise. So, for example, and rather than trying to teach a car, uh, teach a, a piece of software to drive a car, and so I have to teach it what a stop sign is, instead I might take an aircraft and fly it over in you know, untold millions of miles of, uh, of hostile territory, and then maybe the AI is able to identify military trends, um, motion, something that we just couldn't see because there's too much information. You sometimes hear um, the sense of, um, of using things like Twitter and social media to determine sentiment analysis or to determine um, the risk of a potential uh, terrorist attack. You could never review the untold billions of tweets that are tweeted every hour, but a machine sure could. You could never review the untold millions and millions of postings that, that, that happen on social media, but a machine could. In fact, they could review it in real time. And so what it's going to have to do, it's, it's going to have the, it's going to have the ability of giving, making our, making our decision makers smarter, better, because it'll, it'll, it'll find things in this enormous digital noise and surface them for us to evaluate. So that's really the difference between supervised and unsupervised learning. So, sir, maybe, uh, kind of switching gears and then talking about how this is applicable to our modern legal practice. Maybe you could give a little bit of a historical context to just how the legal practice has, has evolved and, and where we are today in, in 2019 and where you expect AI and how AI will, uh, will work with the legal practice of the future. Yeah, it's a great question. So I would, I would say the first thing is we have to recognize that outside of government practice, the, 
the practice of law is ripe for disruption. Um, the lawyer technology has, as a general rule, served as a as a as a breaker of intermediaries, whether it's buying direct from Amazon.com and wiping out mid-level retailers, um, or or other where other places where you can just buy your airplane to flight direct and don't have to go through a travel agent anymore. The role of an intermediary is rapidly being replaced by technology. That's what we're going to see happen in the law because the law lawyers serve as intermediaries. Um, the law is opaque. It's complex. It's hard to understand. It's difficult to even know what section of the law applies to your legal problem. But the problem we've run into when you say, well, let's just all go get a lawyer. So the cost of that getting actually going to get a lawyer is incredibly expensive. Um, even at $350 an hour, a very low rate for most uh, general practitioners, uh, the vast majority of people cannot afford that. In fact, we see anywhere between 50 and 80 percent of all the all the people who have a legal problem in the middle class never, ever have a lawyer uh, get engaged in it. And then when you realize that at the top end of that market, some lawyers are charging as much as $1,500 an hour, that is a market screaming for disruption. We have millions of people who have legal problems and they can't afford it. And the price point per hour is more than $300 an hour. That's exciting. And that is bringing technology into our, into our, uh, I mean, into our world. And that's where, and that's where a lot of this is coming, coming from. It's really to help satisfy these unmet needs. The reason it works, the reason it's going to work so quickly in the law is that the law is set up perfectly for AI. Um, when you think about how the law is structured, the law is structured, you know, subject, predicate, object. It's structured almost like code. Um, I have a slide in a presentation I do that has a, has a flow chart for, um, uh, for admitting a piece of evidence, and next to it, it has some Python code. When you put the two next to each other, you realize they read exactly the same, and that uh, an engineer could look at the code, could look at the law and go, well, that makes sense, and a lawyer could look at the code and go, well, I kind of get how this works. It feels the same way. As such, technology, I think, is really set up to come in and, and, and change that. Um, the last thing I think I would say is that we're already seeing a lot of people, people do this. Um, some of the examples um, are, I think where, where it really hits is that um, routine legal practice is going to go away. If you work at a big law firm, uh, you think about the associate work at these big firms, it's a lot of document review. It's a lot of document drafting. We know machines are already better at that than lawyers are. We're already seeing that. There's a technology called uh, Kira Systems that's used for by law firms to do due diligence. Um, this system basically goes through untold millions of legal documents during a, say, merger and acquisition due diligence process and is able to surface important findings, important information, places where the documents don't seem to agree. Importantly, the lawyers can go in and actually set the criteria, actually adjust what the what it's looking for, much the same way you might give your associate different instructions after they present you with some documents they found. But here's the thing. It might take your associate another week of research to get back to you on an answer. It takes Cure Systems a couple seconds. You simply give Cure Systems another uh, natural language question, and it gives you back another series of answers and surfaces some documents. And you can tell it, hey, I really want to see more of this document, or I need to see documents like this, or I want to see documents that are different from this one. This one's good. Are there any, are there any NDAs that are different than this one? And it can surface all that information to you almost instantly. And it's not just theoretical. This is in, this is in work today um, and has been adopted by some of the biggest law firms in the country. 
I think you and I have talked about that, and that, that to me was fascinating to hear some of those actual concrete examples of where it's happening today, right? This is not just theoretical, it's, it's actually happening today. And you, you gave an example of some AI that was in the UK, I believe, and you also talked about some examples with law firms as well. Yeah, so there are two, I think, that are really interesting to me. So we talk about Cura Systems, which is a great research tool, but a lot of lawyers might look at that and say, well, that's okay, that doesn't really affect my practice. So let's take one that's more near and dear to our hearts. Let's think about the special victim, special victim counsel. Um, obviously, the Air Force and DOD suffer from set challenges and uh, as it relates to sexual assault. And our solution to that was to create a, a special counsel to deal with that specifically. That's not how some Cambridge students decide to address the exact same problems. Um, four Cambridge students got together about three years ago. Um, one of them was 21 years old. And they create a piece of software called Lawbot. What Lawbot does is it helps users understand and learn about um, complex legal problems. It addresses a whole host of different types of legal offenses, um, specifically around sexual assault. They leveraged using um, therapists to come in and make sure that the language that the, that the Lawbot would provide um, uh, was appropriate for potential victims. What it was, the, what Lawbot really was, was this software that allowed allowed users to put in basically their facts, their experience, and Lawbot would prompt them with questions and then eventually give them advice, tell them what whether they might be a victim of a crime, what crimes they might be a victim of, what should their next steps be. But here's what's important about that. It was free. It was available on your smartphone. They didn't collect any data from the users. Why does it do all that? that? Because that's how that's how the rising generations want to interact with technology. And that's how they want to get their problems solved. You see, we've created this massive bureaucracy in the Air Force around the Special Victim Council, again, for good reasons and using really good people to solve a very important problem. But you see those students in Cambridge, they solve that same problem with a little piece of technology, but sometimes referred to as a chat bot. And they did it in six weeks. They did it in six weeks. And they created a tool that is actually what people want to, how people want to get help. I think going to talk to a special victim counsel, if you were potentially a victim of a, a sexual assault, would be very, would be traumatizing, would be very uncomfortable. Downloading an app on your phone and getting that same advice without having to go through that experience, without maybe having to retell that story again publicly, that seems like a really powerful tool. And then there's one other, I think, that is really, really getting to the point of how it how it puts some pressure on actual legal practitioners. Again, everything we've talked about before could be seen as something that just helps lawyers. But there's technology coming down the pike that's going to replace lawyers. One of the examples is a software called Do Not Pay. Do Not Pay was built in the UK. It was a 19-year-old Stanford student who spent the summer in the UK. He didn't understand the law very well, and he got a lot of parking tickets. I mean, thousands, thousands of dollars of parking tickets. And so he decided to fight them, fight all of them. And he did. He fought them and he won. He beat a lot of them. Like any reasonable, like any reasonable 19 year old would. Like any reasonable 19 year old would. Exactly right. Who, who attends Stanford. And, and so when he got done, he realized he'd learned all these amazing things. And so he put it into a piece of software. This piece of software prompts users about their parking ticket problem. Many, many questions. As you answer all of these questions, it automatically generates a letter to print. It prints the letter that says, this is how you should respond. It tells it actually creates the document you should send into the parking authorities and tells you where to send it. Now, here's the thing. There's two really important facts out of this. The first 
uh, more than a year ago, it had handled already 250,000 cases. And when I and when you think, okay, does it win? Well, its win rate is about 67%, which is about the same rate you get if you hire a barrister to represent you. But then here's the part that should make all lawyers nervous. He gave it away for free. He gave it away for free. There is an entire bar in London that focuses entirely on managing people's parking tickets and speeding tickets and their driver's license because obviously big city, lots of people, big problem, lots of things to deal with. And he replaced it with an app that he built in the summer. And so that's the power of this technology. It is wildly disruptive to what we do. And and the last piece of it is, as we think about, we can talk about this in a minute, as we think about where we're going to be in a few years, we're going to be in a place where our potential legal opponents, certainly our other lawyers operating in our space, are going to be using this technology. And if we're not using this technology, we're going to find ourselves falling quickly behind. Wow, that's uh, fascinating stuff, sir. I, I know you meant, you'd also mentioned, uh, in, at least in the corporate context, which I think we will discuss, we're going to be moving into the military context here, but I wanted to start a little broad first, and then we'll focus strictly on, on how this applies to the military. But you had mentioned in the corporate world how AI is already starting to disrupt how uh, settlement negotiations are conducted and, and how litigation is conducted. Yeah, I think I think more on the litigation side. So one of the one of the, the powerful pieces is that there are there is there are now um, there is now AI that will sit that will and there's two, two good examples of this. The first there is one that will draft NDAs for you, and two parties can say we need an NDA, and you can both work with this piece of software. Again, it's also free, and the NDA will will work back and forth with the two parties until they're able to draft an NDA that meets both of their needs. No lawyers involved. But then the one that's coming down the pike that everyone is starting to look at hard is the sense of can can I get some something predictive? Can I get something predictive about how to about my case? And that is and that is that is really powerful because if I know all the lawyers involved, and I know the judges involved, and I'm able to look at untold millions of, of legal cases that have already existed. And I'm able to pull in all the data from all the data from my case in a central location and, and review it. Can the AI give me some prediction of what my settlement likelihood should be? You see, I've worked many years as a corporate counsel and big corporations with some rare exceptions do not want to litigate. What they just want to do is get to an answer, discover how much they have to pay or how much they are going to get paid, and then move on. Because if most companies simply are not in the business of litigation. There are a few high-profile ones like Apple and Microsoft that use litigation a little bit differently. But the vast majority of your mid-cap companies, litigation is just an enormous distraction. They just want to know how quickly can you close it and how little can you spend. What that means is they pay right now lawyers a lot of money to make those estimates. Shockingly large amounts of money. I guarantee that the CFO given the opportunity to just drag and drop all the case files into an oracle somewhere for an answer to that question. Would love that answer. Because you see, if if that oracle also has, um, say, upper and lower bounds of what two parties are willing to settle for, then that's just what mediation does. You think about mediation or even, even to some extent arbitration, it's just about seeing if the upper and lower bounds of someone's settlement authority and, and comfort level are overlap. And if they do, you get a result. Well, if I can do that in 15 minutes with two chief financial officers on a piece of software on a, on a, on a computer somewhere and not spend tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in lawyers doing preparation, 
Is that interesting to me? Do I like that? Am I excited about that? If I'm a corporate executive, you are absolutely certain I am thrilled to do that. And so that is that is the next step for us. And that is going to have enormous, enormous impact because it won't just apply in civil matters. You will, I think we'll see it move over into criminal matters as well. Thank you for listening. We hope you learned a thing or two about artificial intelligence. Please check out episode two, which is the continuation of this interview with Colonel Coppersmith, where we dive into AI's role in the military and JAG Corps at large. Last, feel free to check out Colonel Coppersmith's article entitled, Autonomous Weapons Need Autonomous Lawyers, as published on our digital reporter on 10 April 2019. Thanks again, and see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. You can find this episode, transcription, and show note at reporter.dodlive.mil. We welcome your feedback. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG poor. Until next time. Nothing from this show or any others should be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.